0: Isaiah 7, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer, Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. May God bless to his people the perfect reading and even the imperfect preaching of his holy word. Amen. Amen. Christians, God is with you. Does it make a difference? I mean, of course it makes a difference. I mean, does it make a difference in how you feel and what you do? Does your faith, the conviction that God is with you, control? Does it control how you feel about your circumstances? Does it control what you do with regards to the future? Or is something else in control of those feelings and decisions? This morning's passage is about two men, one for whom God's promises made no difference and one for whom they made all the difference in the world. As a result, it's about a man whose life was tied up with fear and its consequences, and another whose life was freed up to live for God. To live for God, as I understand it, means simply to live with trust in what he says. Is that how you live? Or does something else have the upper hand? Isaiah is a book filled with judgments against unbelief. It's also a book heavily sprinkled with hope-inspiring promises for those who do believe. In chapter 6, Isaiah's life was transformed by a touch of God's grace. Grace instantly replaced his fear of death with eagerness to live for God. For Isaiah, it made all the difference in the world. And yet many others, even today, stand very near to God's grace without it making much difference at all. The passage starts with a lot of names. After the death of Solomon, 10 of Israel's 12 tribes seceded, leading to a tumultuous 200 years. And now Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, is king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Pekah, son of Remaliah, is the northern king. And we're also introduced to Rezin, the king of Syria, a superpower now in decline. It's Assyria, with an A, that's on the rise. And neither Syria, Israel, nor Judah are strong enough to stand against Assyria on their own. Israel defensively aligns itself with Rezin and Syria. And Pekah, the king of Israel, is pressuring Ahaz, the king of Judah, to join this alliance. And when Ahaz hesitates, because he's scheming a different alliance, Rezin and Pekah conspire to come together and attack Judah and install their own king on David's throne. The people of Judah are terrified. They're not conspiracy theorists. Everyone really is out to get them. This is the political and military crisis of Isaiah's lifetime. Will Judah survive? Will things ever be the same? Will they fall to Israel and Syria? Or will Assyria destroy them first? There's a lot going on. Their lives are filled with uncertainty and challenge 9% inflation is also a lot going on <laughs> social unrest because of political judicial and corporate corruption are worthy of concern the death of civility rationality and reasoned debate is especially coupled with a newsbite culture social media mobs and canceling these make it hard even to talk about the things that matter with one another. Yet don't you see that we're not the first to face challenging, even seemingly impossible circumstances? And somehow, with all this drama going on in Judah, the focus of this chapter is not on the historical events. They're just the setting. The focus is on the hearts of two men. Isaiah's heart is confident. Why? Because he has faith. Why faith? Because he's seen God's glory and received God's grace. And so he believes God's promises. Ahaz, on the other hand, has a heart filled with fear. Why fear? Because he lacks faith. Why? Because the grandest vision, what looms largest in Ahaz's sight is not God's glory. It's his circumstances. What makes the difference between Isaiah and Ahaz, one pastor says, is a sense of the glory of Christ in his heart. With a heart of faith. Look at what Isaiah does under such difficult circumstances. What's happening to Isaiah in his life is no different from what's happening to Ahaz. The first two verses set that historical stage, and it's a stage they share. But in the context of these tumultuous circumstances, Isaiah is listening to the word of God. He hears God say, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. And do you know what Isaiah does when God says that? That. He does that. He does what God says, and he obediently takes that word To Ahaz, he doesn't say, God, you don't understand everything that's happening around here. God, you don't understand what could happen. God, you don't understand how complicated all of this is. He hears God speak and he believes it and he obeys it and he pronounces it to the king of Judah. You can tell how firmly Isaiah believed God through some of the phrases that he uses. One scholar notices verse 5's two smoldering stumps of firebrands. I hope that made you chuckle. What, What looks like firebrands to human eyes, full of power and danger, something to be feared, by faith are revealed to be merely smoldering stumps. Fear makes danger look more dangerous than it actually is. Fear always makes danger look much more dangerous than it actually is. So for Isaiah, by faith, the same circumstances simply read differently. Amid all this political and military upheaval, God tells his people not to fear, Not because he's blind to the danger. That's why this passage lays out all of these facts, by the way. It's God demonstrating through the prophet that he is perfectly aware of what's happening. In verses 5 and 6, even down to the details of the king's hopes and plans. God knows every detail of what's happening in Ahaz's life and in Isaiah's life and in your life. And in the context of knowing all of those details. He says plainly in verse 7 that what Judah and Ahaz fear most will not happen. From Isaiah's perspective, while Judah could have been conquered here, they will be conquered later. He knows it won't happen here because God said it. But Isaiah would have already known this wasn't going to happen because what Pekah wanted most, what Ahaz feared most, isn't even a possibility what they wanted was for Judah to be wiped off the map, the throne of David to be ended, and a new king and kingship to rule the southern kingdom. But Isaiah believes the covenant that God made with the house of David. He knows it can't happen. He knows that God is with his people, and he knows that God's promises are what set the boundaries on the question of What's the worst that could happen? Frightful things can and will happen. But God will always be faithful to his covenants. And so it's our belief in God's promises that should set the boundaries of what we fear. We're allowed to fear everything. Anything that God has told us he's not in control of and that we're allowed to fear. The end of verse 9 is a play on words that many have tried to convey in English. The ESV says if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Another attempt from the other side of the coin would be hold God in doubt and you will not hold out. Or you will live by faith or you'll not live at all. What it means is, your only hope are the promises of God. Does that sound limiting? As in, you only have one hope left? Maybe. But what is that one hope? It's the promises of God. Can they fail to come to pass? No. Can they be thwarted by God's enemies or yours? No. Will they deliver anything less than what they've promised? No. Well, if you only have one thing in which to put your hope, that's a pretty good thing, isn't it? It's the absolute promises of God. I wonder... How often we live that way. Isaiah did. But Ahaz is another story. Ahaz knows that he rules from the throne of David. He knows the covenant God has made. He knows that Isaiah is the prophet of the living God. He even knows that these circumstances are the result of Judah's unfaithfulness with him at the helm. To return to stability and blessing, national repentance is needed, starting at the top. God, through his prophets, has made this known time and time again. And Ahaz should also know, because God has said it, that God is with his people and that God's promises cannot fail. But despite knowing all of this, how does Ahaz act? scared. And that's not just harmful for him. It's harmful for everyone because fear is one of the most contagious things I know. Kids, look at verse two. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The whole nation was afraid. They looked at their circumstances and saw some potentially scary things coming. They said, oh no, there are some bad times ahead. And then what did they do? They looked to their leader, King Ahaz. And when they saw that he was shaking in fear, that's when they gave in and lived in fear as well. There will be scary circumstances or the threat of them all throughout your life. I tell you this with no joy as your pastor. There will never be a day in your life where there is absolutely nothing scary out in the future. And now when you're young, you look to your parents before you look to your fears See how they trust God. See how they believe that God is with his people and that God will keep his promises. Look at your elders here at the church. When we trust God to keep his promises, you should too. God puts these leaders in our lives to set this kind of example. And Ahaz utterly failed. He was filled with fear when he should have been filled with faith. And more and more over time, kids, it will be your responsibility to be the ones who set that example for someone else. Believe God when he says he's with you. Believe God when he says he'll keep his covenant promises. And if you believe this, it will make a difference, not just in your life, but in the life of everyone who's watching you. Ahaz's evaluation of the situation did not even include God or his promises. He was thinking about the military defeats in Judah's recent history. He was thinking about their internal weakness and the power of Syria and Assyria. He was thinking about the treacherousness of Israel. And when you know the details of your circumstances better than you know God, you will be afraid. When you know the details of your circumstances better than you know God, you will be afraid. Ahaz had the opportunity to calm his fears through trust in God, but as one of the reformers noticed, there's always a difference between the fear of the godly and the fear of the ungodly. The godly immediately turn to God, in whom they know they have a safe harbor. But the ungodly find no way to calm their minds. It's good to be prepared for difficult circumstances. But when we prepare, first things must come first. Prayer Casting our cares on he who cares for us, that should come first, not as the last resort. Engagement with the word of God so that we remember his promises and our faith is strengthened by grace. This should come first, not as a last resort. And for Ahaz, these didn't even make the list. When Isaiah finds him in verse 3, he's out checking the status of Judah's water reserves, wondering how long they can hold out under a siege or an invasion. Now, water's important, but that's not going to save them here. Preparations of this kind theoretically aren't the problem. But my experience is we tend to prioritize them in such a way that we reveal we really trust in our preparations more than we trust in God. Ahaz is filled with fear because, in his mind, his only hope is in Judah's water reserves and their military defenses, and as you can read in 2 Kings, his own political machinations and scheming. And God sends Isaiah to call Ahaz to confidence in something that will actually work. God's promises. It is no coincidence that in the ordering of the book of Isaiah, this story comes right after chapter six. We have that clear presentation of God's power and His saving grace in Isaiah's resp- confession and sin, uh, confession of sin, and His request for cleanliness, His woe is me." and God responds. Isaiah is in a position where he cannot do anything to save himself and God acts. And then we turn the page of our Bibles and where is Ahab? Ahaz is in a position where he cannot do anything to save himself and God sends him the prophet and says, trust my promises. What Judah needs is what Isaiah just did to confess sin and to turn to God. That's what Ahaz needs, to confess sin and to turn to God because we just read that God responds to this with saving and empowering grace. All of the answers to chapter 7's problems are spelled out plainly in chapter 6. The answer to fear of circumstances Is the experience of salvation. Whether it's in Isaiah 7. Or 2022. The answer to fear of circumstances. Is the experience of salvation. And Ahaz gets even more than just that general principle. He gets the specific details of what's going to happen. God tells him, I know who these two kings are, and they cannot do what they desire to do. I've set limits on how far they will advance, and Judah will not fall to them. It's as if through Isaiah, God is saying, here, Ahaz, here on a silver platter is every single thing anyone could possibly need to live in a dangerous moment without fear. And nonetheless, Ahaz's heart Shakes as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. What a shame. So much wasted opportunity. In the verses right after this morning's passage, God will tell Ahaz to ask for a sign. Yet one more gracious offer from God to put Isaiah's fears to rest. But Ahaz has so little faith, he won't even ask for that sign. He's not firm in faith. And so he will not be firm at all. Isaiah 7 is about Isaiah and Ahaz. It's not about us. So we begin by looking carefully at the contrast between these two men. This is what makes us good hearers of the word. What is God saying here? But I regret to inform you that we've also been called to be doers of the word. Of Judah's situation, one could generalize this way. God has made extraordinary promises to a group of people. He's always kept those promises. In fact, he is incapable of breaking them. And these people, with God's promises, live in a world with scary things, not the least of which is God's judgment against sin. And because of the world in which they live and because of their sin, the people with God's promises endure trials and hardships and difficulties. And nonetheless, all throughout them, God assures these people with promises that they can persevere by faith. None of these Trials or hardships or difficulties, none of them can separate these people with promises from the love of God or the glorious future he's promised. And also along the way, God gave these people with promises signs. Signs that confirm these promises. He shows them things that can be seen and experienced and touched and tasted and felt. By human senses. He tells them that he knows both the weakness of their faith and the limits of their humanity. And so in grace, he's giving them evidence that his word is true and that his promises are sure. And then the people with these promises are told more than any other command in scripture. Not to fear. They're warned that fear will only make their lives harder and less joyful. Trust is held out as an opportunity to live in peace and assurance and to honor the God of the promises. So if there were such a people, what do you think those people ought to do? We know this is not an academic exercise. This is, in fact, the question of the Christian life. This is the question of every crisis. For some of you, it's the question of this morning or of the week to come. And if not this week, a week that is surely coming soon. God will even make our lives dangerous as a call to greater trust in him. Another pastor writes, Inevitably, God brings us into crisis so that sooner or later, the question presses itself against us. If I trust in God, will he save me? Remember, this crisis is what animated the faithful response from Isaiah. It's what provided the joy of salvation. Here I am, send me, was right after, woe am I, I'm undone. Isaiah's faith, to quote another, was swallowed up with a sense of the glory of Christ. And that surrender is now pleasure. It's gratitude and joy that makes us respond to God in faith and trust. It's gratitude and joy for the salvation we've received. And verses like verse 9 really serve to simplify things for us. We will believe the promises of God. We will find our security and hope and comfort in the word of God. Or we will not find it anywhere. And also, is it possible To abandon God's word and promises for our circumstances while still faithfully clinging to them for our souls. The choice to live in fear affects not simply the trial in front of us. It affects our souls and our eternity. The sense of Christ that we get from God's grace and salvation, this is what must fill our hearts in times of fear. It alone enables us to trust God's promises when danger abounds. That sense of Christ is why Isaiah believed and turned from fear and why Ahaz did not and turned to his fear. So the chastising question to close is, why are you afraid? But the more helpful question is what would it take for you to get a sense of the glory of Christ in your heart? And how can we as a church help? We're fearful because our hearts are divided. Even if we have a glory, a vision of Christ's glory in them, we also have other visions, visions of idols, our own desires and plans. And we think that without them, we cannot be happy and fulfilled. And whatever it was Isaiah saw in chapter six, it had the effect of making him fully satisfied with God. All those other desires and idols were burned up. And that's why Chapter 7 and his undivided heart are such a stark contrast with Ahaz. Would you ask God to show you your own heart? Talk to your shepherding elder and to me. Let's work on this together so that we can be a congregation of people who believe in God's promises in all circumstances. You know, we focus on one fruit of the spirit every quarter for our growth as individuals and in a congregation. This quarter is kindness. The signs are hanging up around. When you are filled with fear, how kind are you to others? Not very, I suspect. And honestly, I could have picked any of the fruit of the Spirit and make the same case. Because we cannot express the fruit of the Spirit for the glory of God and the good of others when our internal state is one of fear rather than faith. We can't be patient when other people don't go along with our plans. We can't express the fruit of the Spirit when our hearts are fear rather than faith. So let's pray. Let's pray for a vision of the glory of Christ in our hearts. That's what we need. Not to beat one another up, to have a better vision of Christ in our hearts. And let's use the signs that he's given, these sacraments and the means of grace, let's use them to confirm and seal that faith tangibly in our lives. We need to know God well enough that even when we're learning the nitty gritty details of our fearful circumstances, we still see God more clearly. Let's grow in grace. By the means of grace. And then not because of our circumstances. But because of our God. Let us trust.